We're going to turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And then if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. I'm just going to read the first verse of our text. We'll read the rest of it later. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to stand with your people and to think about your word for a few moments as we reorient our hearts and lives according to what your word teaches. Uh, Lord, we know uh, that we need you to direct our lives, to order our steps, uh, for it is not in a man to plan out his way. Uh, Lord, that comes from you. And so I ask, Lord, that you direct each of our lives. Pray that you be glorified this morning, that you would, uh, by your spirit, speak to us. Uh, may we hear what you have to say to each one of us, because you know where we are in life and relationship to you. Uh, may you be honored, may you be glorified, and may uh, your people be ministered to because your spirit is present and he is working in each of our hearts and lives. We want you to be honored above all, your name alone. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. One of the articles I read this week was by a gentleman named uh, Dr. Dan Doriani. Uh, he's a graduate of Westminster, and he shared a story about one of his children. Uh, his daughter's name is Abby. Uh, when Abby graduated from college, she did what most of us hope to do when we graduate from college, which is to land a job with a large corporation. Uh, I don't know what her field of background was. Perhaps it was in accounting, and that's probably why she ended up with the job that she ended up with, uh, which was a, a job where she found a, a small office, which she was with no windows in this small office all day long, and she spent her day crunching numbers. Uh, but that crunching numbers, that was not without purpose. Uh, the purpose was that she had a, a, a position within the company to, to do all the research necessary to set the selling price point for the clothing uh, that had been assigned to her. And her job was to find out what was the right, right price point to sell that clothing at. Now, for her, although she's a Christian, uh, she struggled to find meaning uh, in her work. And so that made the days difficult and hard because she was trying to figure out how to connect her faith with her work. Uh, then one day something happened for her that helped that to come together. Uh, she happened to be out at one of the stores. I'm not sure why she was out at the store, but she was at one of their local branches. And because the people didn't know who she was, uh, she was there and able to overhear a conversation between two ladies. Uh, one of the ladies said to the other one, hey, this is a great sweater. I'm looking forward to wearing it at our party this weekend. And the other one replied, yeah, this is a great sweater. It's really affordable. Uh, you know, if I, could, uh, if I could have the money, I would buy three of these sweaters. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you know, I would love to have this. You could look at this. Look at the interior of it. You know, it's so well made. Uh, and then it was at that moment that for her, a light bulb went off. And this is what she said. She said, this was an epiphany. It hit me in that moment. Uh, these are quality sweaters at a fair price. Uh, it isn't my job to get women to buy what I would like. Who am I to judge what style should please them? I realized my work made life a little bit better for these women. And if I helped them buy quality sweaters that they like, that would be great. And I realized uh, that this was a way for me to love my neighbors. 
Her dad went on to say at the end of the article that Abby is a thoughtful, dedicated disciple of Jesus Christ. And if she struggles to connect her faith and her work, then anyone can. And I think her dad is correct. I think this is what plagues many of us in life. Uh, We struggle to see how what we do daily connects to what we believe and do on the weekend or in our lives, our faith in Jesus Christ. How do I take what I believe about Jesus and connect it to what I do every day for a living? And this becomes especially important when we think about the amount of times of our life that's invested in work. Now, for most of you in this room, I would take a guess uh, that you're unlike me or like Pastor Mike, outside of the, the hours that you spend each week either here attending service or serving in some capacity, You don't spend your life working in vocational ministry, so it becomes a little bit harder to make that connection. Uh, Others have said, uh, when we think about the amount of time that's spent, they have summed up, some have estimated that about one-third of your entire adult life will be spent working. That's a lot of hours. And so uh, in light of that, uh, two writers, one William Messenger and uh, his co-author Gordon Priest, Uh, summed it up this way. He said, we spend more time at work, whether paid or unpaid, than any other waking activity. And if God cares about our lives, he must care about our work, unless he intends to ignore the biggest part of our lives. Uh, And the scriptures do tell us that God does care. And so today, I simply want to offer you two thoughts to begin to set you on the path, if you're not already on that path, to thinking about how what you do every day connects to your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is uh, we're just going to scratch the surface today. Maybe in the future we can do a sermon series. There's a lot that we can look at here. But today we're just going to, to set your feet on that path and begin to, to just to think about how those two things might connect for you, especially since you're going to spend the majority of your life working. So here's the first thought that I would like to share with you, and it's this. That the will of God includes that we work while we wait for Jesus. The will of God includes that we work while we wait for Jesus. Now, if we were to want to derive that from passages, we could pick that up from a variety of passages. It's throughout the scriptures, this idea, concept, that the will of God includes work is taught both in the Old and the New Testament. But for our focus today, I'm going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. So let me take you back there, and let me read you the passage in its entirety. And this is what we find that Paul says, uh, picking up uh, verse 6, and then we'll pick up the rest of it now. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked day, night, and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the, that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Uh, So the city of Thessalonica 
was an important city to which Paul is writing uh, these Christians. Uh, it had been an important city before Rome had, uh, the Roman Empire had taken it over, and it continued to be when the Roman Empire had occupied and conquered uh, that city because it was a seaport, and it was a great place for trade and on the route of trade, and so uh, it was an important city. Not only was it an important city, but a lot of the Roman soldiers, when they retired and freedmen, uh, occupied and became the citizens of the city. So this city, unlike some other citizens or cities with citizens, uh, had a high loyalty to the empire and to the emperor. Uh, and so they did whatever they could. There were a lot of political things that were playing out. But it was into this context, as we read in Acts chapter 17, that Paul entered with the message about another king. Uh, by the power of God, uh, through the work of the Spirit, he proclaimed to them that in Israel there was a man who was crucified, who died, and was raised from the dead by the power of God. And this was the new king whom God declared that all men give their allegiance to. He was the promised Jewish king that God had foretold about in the prophets. And so now you can imagine in a city that is loyal to the emperor and loyal to the empire to hear the announcement about, about a new king to which all people should give their allegiance could be disturbing, and it was. And although there were some that did come to faith because the spirit by his power drew people to Jesus, there were many who did not respond. And as a result, they made life hard for those who did respond because they were giving allegiance to another king other than the emperor. And because of that suffering, because of that difficulty in the life of the believers at Thessalonica, the Christians began to think about their theology and then think about what was going on in their lives. And because some false teachers had slipped in as well, they were concerned that because of the intense suffering that they were experiencing, that the day of the Lord had come upon them or they had potentially missed Jesus. And so they were concerned about that. And so Paul writes to them. But one of the other things that Paul finds out about this church, we're not told how he finds out, but someone informs him and shares with him what's going on. Some of the people in the church have decided that in light of the circumstances, they're going to quit their jobs. And they had quit their jobs, and they had stopped working. Now, scholars are divided over this. They're not sure exactly what the reason is behind this behavior. Some suggest that what it might be because of what they call or refer to as an overrealized eschatology. And that may play out in one of two ways. One, it is, hey, look, we're suffering so bad. Uh, the end of the world, the end of the ages have come upon us because that's what believers expected to happen at the end of the age, that right before the Messiah would come, that believers would suffer greatly. And they were suffering greatly, so they were like, that day must be upon us right now. It must be happening. And so, that, so then in light of that, they were like, well, Jesus is coming soon. And if Jesus is going to come soon and I'm going to leave anyway, why does, should I go to a manual labor job every day? Jesus is about to take me out of the world. I don't need to work. Right? Some people are like, amen. They're like, come on, Jesus, right now. Right? Yeah. So that, 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 that's kind of the idea uh, that they were having, right? And Paul's going to correct that. Second thing is it may be the sense of that they had realized because of Paul's preaching, what Paul told them is that the end of the era, the new era, had dawned in the present era. So you have an overlap of, of the old era, the way the world order is, with the new era the coming era where the Messiah will rule and put, put God's reign on the earth. And the evidence of that is the life of the Spirit. So some people may have been thinking to themselves, well, the new era has dawned. I can throw off all these old restraints that deal with the old era. And part of that throwing off of restraint is working. And so it may have been that. So they may have been an overrealized eschatology. Others are not so much concerned about the eschatology. They don't see a link between that. 
what they see is it may have been more of just a practical thing that is played out on the Christian ethic, that we as believers are a family. And because we're a family, that means when one of us is in need, we should care for the other member in the family. And they may have been taken advantage of that in light of the culture of the day. The Greeks, it, it is told to us, uh, despise the idea of manual labor. And that's what most people had to do to survive. And so they may have been decided to enter into what was called a patronage relationship. Uh, and this is where you would be in a church uh, and you might quit your job and then you might uh, form a relationship with someone who's in the fellowship who's wealthy. And you would enter this relationship where they would become the patron and you would become the client. And what that meant is that they would afford to you certain things. They provide you food, money, representation in court, and a variety of things like that. And in return, you would be their client and you would offer to them your loyalty and service. So perhaps, you know, they'd be like, hey, you know, I don't want to go to Giant today. Can you go down and, you know, do my shopping for me? You know, we have DoorDash for that and other things, you know, and Uber Eats and all that. But they may have done that in that day. That, that was their DoorDash. And so you would say, yeah, I'll, I'll be your person. I'll go down and go shopping at Giant for you, get your stuff and bring it back to you. And you would happily do that. Then they would give you a little bit of money. And that's how you would survive. And this may have been the case of what was going on, that they had stopped doing their jobs and started depending on uh, these wealthy people. And so they were getting into the affairs and trying to, to be about the business and concerns in the marketplace for this wealthy person that they were representing. And Paul says to them here, to those who have chosen not to work, uh, that they were living uh, here, idleness is not laziness, but disorderly lives. Disorder in the sense that God has laid out an order for how he wants humans to live, and they're not following that pattern that God has laid out. They're doing something else. And because they're not obeying God's design for how humans are to live, they're disorderly. They're not following the order of God. Paul says to them, listen, you know the pattern of how, how God wants you to live because we showed it to you. When he showed up and when his other fellow missionary people showed up, he lived the pattern out for them of how believers are supposed to live their lives. And you see, you see that in the text. And then he says, not only did we do that, but we taught you what God wanted you to to do. And so we told you and we showed you. Now, for some of us, we may get concerned here, but Paul is not addressing those of us who do not have the ability to work. That's in the text because it says they will. It's a decision that they're making. So there are some who are in our context who, for one reason or another, perhaps a medical reason, you're unable to work. He's not talking to you. Or perhaps you're the person who has been seeking employment and you've been unable to find it. You're actively looking, you're searching every day, and your job every day is to find a job. He's not talking to you. He's talking about those people who have chosen to, in this case, live off of the generosity of others. And so Paul says to them, that is a disorderly way of living for a Christian. And so he says, here's the pattern that you're to follow. Notice in the text what he says there. He says that they labored with toil night and day. He says that the believer is to work hard to provide for their own needs. In the letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verse 28, uh, we learn that he also says it's not just laboring for our needs, but also for the needs of others. And we know that this matter is a serious matter for Paul because of what he says needs to be done in relationship to those who have not repented of what has happened. Now, Paul is, is, is not just laying this out uh, haphazardly. This is after a process of time. So Paul says to them, first of all, when I was there, I modeled it for you. I lived the way you ought to live. Then when we were in church together, I taught you what you were supposed to do. 
And then after I left, when I found out you were not living according to what I had laid down for you and showed you the way that God wants you to live and taught you the way God wants you to live, I then wrote you and encouraged uh, those believers who were following that path to warn you to live this way. And now time has passed and you still haven't changed your behavior. And so now as a result of that, the church community needs to do something else. And so after being taught, uh, after being demonstrated, being given time, being warned on several occasions, then being given more time, and you still haven't changed your behavior. Paul says the community of believers now needs to hold you accountable. And he says to the community of believers, we need to, as a community, exercise uh, something for their redemptive purposes, which is church discipline. Because they have ignored all of the teaching, demonstration, and warnings previously, and they have not turned back to follow in the way that God wants them to live. And so now it is the responsibility of the community to exercise discipline so this person might mature or return to the faith uh, that God has laid out for them. And then he says, in addition to that, if they're receiving any kind of support from the church, this is what he means by that parable that he lays out, cut them off. The church is no longer to support them. If they've chosen to live a disorderly life, it is not the responsibility of the church to provide for their needs. If they don't want to work, then you shouldn't let them eat. And what's interesting about that is that when you stop eating, it's interesting how motivated you can become, <laughs> right? And so Paul says this is a way to motivate them to right living, right? And it is the church's responsibility in all areas of life that whenever any of us, after being taught, shown, warned, and given time, when we will not correct our lives, it is the responsibility of the community of believers to come alongside and help in a loving way through church discipline to reorder our lives. That's one of the responsibilities that we do as a church. So the text says to us, while we wait for the Lord Jesus, then we need to work to provide for our needs, and as Ephesians 4 said, for the needs of others. And this takes into account both paid labor and unpaid labor, like raising children, homeschooling, caring for elderly parents, or some form of volunteering, whether that's, you know, you serve at a local food pantry or you tutor someone after school or whatever form of volunteering that is that you may, may do uh, in life. And so this means for us that when you go to work and spend those hours at work, you're obeying an element of God's will for your life. And you can do God's will. Don't have to do that only by being a pastor or working in a church or serving as a missionary. You can do it if you drive a truck. You can do it if you work in retail. You can do it if you prepare food. If you clean, you're a sound engineer, and the list goes on. Think about it. In Jesus' own life, now listen, Jesus never sinned, so in his own life, for the majority of his life, he didn't spend it in ministry. The majority of his life he spent working as a carpenter. And if that was in God's will for the life of his son, how might that influence your life? See, he was doing God's will while he was working as a carpenter. Now, I need to state this here just for, I know it's obvious, but I need to state it just to make sure that we have covered all the bases. Uh, that does not mean that illegitimate jobs are approved by God. So let me give you an illustration of what that might look like. If you decide that you're going to be a professional thief <laughs> and you're going to work hard at it, you're going to do all of the stuff to perform your heist to the best of your ability, to the glory of God, I'm telling you, that's not to the glory of God. Because in that way, you are violating one of God's other commands. And God would not support you as a professional thief. So that would not be a job that you would receive God's support on. Now, that raises a number of questions that we can answer. Maybe that's why we can do a series in the future, because there are a lot of questions I'm not going to address that can be raised about work and faith. But let me raise one 
that would become important that we've addressed before, but just to remind you about. And that's the question about work and retirement. And that's maybe a, a, something that happens for us here in the West, but, but work and, and retirement. Uh, Pastor Mike did a wonderful sermon so on this a number of years ago. You can go back and look through the archives, and you can listen to the full explanation. Of that. But let me give you a more summarized, shortened version. Uh, and I'll draw this from a resource that we give out in our Discover class. Discover, of course, is the class that when you first start attending Living Water, we try to, to encourage you to attend so that you can connect to the life of the church. Find out about who we are. We find out about you, and then we help you to make an informed decision whether or not Living Water is the place for you. But in that class, we give out websites to help you in your journey of faith, and we recommend to you to use so you can access them when you're not here in the church to help you grow in your faith. And one of those is called GodQuestions.org. And so uh, in that, they gave out this summarized form of responding to this idea of retirement and work from a biblical perspective. Let me share with you what they say here. They say, first of all, although there is no biblical principle that a person should retire from his work when he reaches a certain age, there is an example of the Levites and their work in the tabernacle. Numbers chapter 4. The Levite males are numbered for service in the tabernacle from ages 25 to age 50 years old. And after 50, they were to retire from regular service. They could continue to, uh, as the text says, assist their brothers but they could not continue in the direct labor or the direct work of keeping up the tabernacle. Secondly, uh, even though we may retire from our vocations, even full-time ministry, we should never retire from serving the Lord, although where we serve him may change. There's two examples of this uh, in the New Testament. We went through the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38, Simeon and Anna. Uh, she continued to serve the Lord Faithfully, Anna, of course, she had been married for seven years, I believe, if I remember correctly, and then her husband died, and she spent the rest of her life ministering in the temple daily through fasting and prayer. Titus 2 tells us that older men and older women are to teach, by example, younger, men, younger women and younger men how they're to live their lives. That's one of the roles and responsibilities of those who are older in the congregation to those who are younger in the congregation of believers. Now, the third thing is that once one, uh, one's older years are not to be spent solely in the pursuit of pleasure. Paul says that a widow who lives for, lives for pleasure is dead yet while she lives, 1 Timothy 5, 6. Contrary to biblical instruction, many people equate retirement with the pursuit of pleasure, if at all possible. Now, this is not to say that if you retire, you can't enjoy golf or social functions or pleasurable pursuits. But these should not be the primary focus of anyone's life for a believer at any age. See, the Christian never retires from Christ's service. He only changes the address of his workplace. Reading this article reminded me of a book that I read a number of years ago by John Piper. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. And at the beginning of the book, he lays out the story. And that's exactly what a man says who had lived his retirement life like that as he was coming to the end of his life, living it for pleasure. And you know what he said? I wasted it. I wasted my life. That ought not to be the case in the believer's life. Now, others have said work is a wonderful thing that God has given us, a wonderful gift, because it is a place in which we can serve the Lord by serving other people. We have opportunities to engage with those who don't have faith in the same way we have faith. 
is wonderful. You know, often what happens in the Christian life, sometimes we can insulate ourselves to where we live in a Christian bubble, but work has a way of moving us outside of that bubble into a place where people who don't believe what you believe, you have interaction with them regularly. So that is a wonderful thing that God has gifted you in your life. And it is a wonderful thing because work often becomes a place that God uses in your life to help you grow in your faith and display those things that are the fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps there's someone at work that tests your patience, right? Someone that every time you go to work, you're always having to pray, Lord, help me today, not to act in a way that would uh, show uh, things that are, that are very fleshly, right? But God is helping you in that moment so that your patience might grow, your long-suffering, your joy. Uh, in our community, we've been going through the series on relationships, and that's one of the gifts that God gives you is difficult relationships in your life because that is what actually helps you to develop in the fruit of the Spirit. And so your work environment becomes a wonderful place for you to be able to grow as a believer. So that gives me the second thought, uh, which uh, I want to share with you, which is this. Uh, work for God while you wait for Jesus. So work for God while you wait for Jesus. So uh, the Bible lays out this idea that our faith relationship with Jesus should transform every aspect of our lives. As Christians, we don't have a sacred, sacred and secular divide. Uh, we don't live that way as believers. Uh, as believers, all of life, all and everything you do is sacred. Because you have, been be, you have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. You have become God's temple. So wherever you go and whatever you do, God is always with you and present in everything you do. And that is because also the reality is that when you came to faith in Christ, every part of your life came under the rule of the Lordship of Christ. And so there should be no aspect, and I mean no aspect, of your life that you should consider that's outside of the loving, kingly rule of Jesus. All of it is under his rule, and this includes your work. The, the Apostle Paul addresses this idea of work uh, in a transformed way because of our relationship with Jesus in Colossians 3 when he talks about the whole life of the believer being transformed. You have to take off the old self, put on the new self. And so he lays that out uh, in the text, and you'll find that here. Let me uh, find that in my Bible, and then I'll read it to you. Colossians chapter 3, uh, picking up at verse 22. So, uh, and the text reads uh, here, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master uh, in heaven. So as you probably noticed, this is not talking about uh, employers and employees. It's talking about slaves and masters. Paul is writing into a context uh, which the institution of slavery was widespread during their day. And so he is talking to slaves and masters. Now, we always have to think, take a moment to recall that uh, slavery in the first century was somewhat different than the slavery in the antebellum South. So it's not exactly the same. It operated differently on a number of cases, but it still was slavery. People could be treated poorly. So uh, that's a bad thing. Now, what's interesting is that if you want to know Paul's view about this, you just simply need to read the book of Philemon. 
uh, Paul takes an interesting approach in dealing with a slave-master relationship where both people are believers and how they are now to relate to each other as a relationship uh, as in response to the fact that they both have faith in Christ. And he talks about that and how they're to do that. So he kind of undermines slavery by laying out that in Christ we're to have new relationships, which changes how we function in relationship to others. But there are principles that he lays out here in that context that's true and good for those who are in employee and employer relationships. So for those of us who work for others, we're to work, as one writer put it, with integrity as though we're in the presence of God. Paul says to us, do your work for God, not for your boss, not for a paycheck, and not even for yourself, but do your work for the Lord. It would be as if you would imagine that every day you went to work and when you checked in, your supervisor, your boss, the owner of your company or whatever it is that you do is God. Because what Paul says is the reality is he really is the final boss because he's keeping track of what's going on. And so Paul gives a very uh, tangible way in which we can live this out in one way. He says that there's this tendency, because he notices what happens with slaves, because it's, it's a bad work environment for them at times, uh, depending on what the role they had, uh, depending on who their master was. Uh, he says, listen, there's this tendency that when those who have authority over you are not around, humans have this tendency to slack off. You don't work with the same enthusiasm as you do when those who are over you are watching you. That's right. So, so that happens in some lives. So sometimes it, it plays out in a variety of ways uh, in people's lives. I found in some articles. Uh, it may look like for you, uh, you know, your boss is on vacation that week, and uh, perhaps you don't have one of those jobs where you go in and you just work steady all the way until you get off from work. But you have some flexibility with your time. And so what you end up doing is your boss is not there, and there's something interesting going on in Facebook. So you jump on Facebook, and here you are on Facebook. You start updating your status. Ooh, let me put that. Ooh, ooh, what's going on here? You flipping through pictures. Fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and pass by. You've been on Facebook, and you clocking in. Or perhaps you're not a Facebook person, but you got your smartphone out, right? Somebody then text something interesting to you, and you're like, Ooh, what is that? Boop. Oh, hold up. Now, I know they didn't just say that. Wait, wait, wait a minute here. So you respond, Oh, what? Next thing you know, you got a group text going on, 15 people involved, y'all texting like crazy. You're not working, but you claiming work. You know what that's called? Slacking. But you know what the Bible calls it? Stealing. Perhaps you're on break and you're breaking too long. You're extra breaking. You're still on break. Should have been off 10 minutes ago, but you're breaking. Right? Because no one's there watching you. Paul says, but that's not really the case for you as a believer. You are being watched. God is your boss, and God is watching, and he's keeping track of how you're living out your responsibilities that he has entrusted to you in that job, and he's going to hold you accountable whether your boss finds out or not. God is going to hold you accountable. And so you're not to work for your job, for your boss, for your paycheck. You're to work for God because you've been entrusted by God with that responsibility. Conversely, he says to those who have oversight of others, be careful how you handle your, your uh, privilege of being over others. He says, respond to others justly and fairly and with kindness because you have a master as well who's going to hold you accountable for how you treat others and manage them. Now, 
When we go to work with God as our boss, it has a way of affecting how we do and think about our work. One example that Dr. Doriana gives again is by a young man that he had, I guess, counseled with by a young man by the name of Kyle. Kyle was a young financial planner who had started off in the industry, and on this particular case or instance, he had been given a new client. It was a young or a couple, uh, and they didn't have any kids, but they had an extreme financial means, and they wanted to invest their resources in their extra, I guess, money that they had uh, into Planned Parenthood. And this calls for him as a believer a, a dilemma because he as a believer uh, held a historic Christian position on this issue, which he would, that is that he is life-affirming. And so he was trying to figure out in his mind, how could I, in good conscience, help them invest in something that I believe is immoral? Now, he didn't have the option because of the regulations of his job to simply turn them over to someone else. And he said, you know, what good is it really going to do if I just hand them off to another person? Or what is it really going to solve if they end up going in that direction? So he did what we all should do. When we don't know what to do, we go to Scripture and we go to other believers who have maturity. And so he sought out uh, two pastors that he knew, uh, Dr. Doriani uh, and uh, perhaps another pastor now who's not listed I asked for counsel, and it was through that relationship and talking that he came to a different conclusion of how to handle the situation. And what he decided was to end up having a conversation with the couple about what were the values that were causing them to want to contribute to Planned Parenthood. And after having that discussion, discovering what their values were, and he knew what they wanted to do, he was able to offer to them other opportunities to use their money in ways that were consistent with their values, but then put him in a position that compromised his standing because of his relationship with Jesus. And that's what happens in our job. Doesn't mean it always works out, but that's a way that we try to honor God when he is our boss. But how can we serve at our jobs this week? Uh, author Bethany Jenkins gives four ways that we can uh, live this out in practical ways. She said, one, uh, be known as a fair, caring, and committed person uh, to others who are at your job. She says, you know, since we know the depths of our own sin as believers and the magnitude of God's grace given to us through Christ on the cross and his resurrection, then we can be ready to forgive and reconcile to others. Now, others may not have an impetus to want to reconcile relationships at work. When relationships become hostile and they break down, they may not have a reason to want to do that, but we have an internal motivation for that because of what Christ has done for us because God is in the world, reconciling the world to himself, we have a reason to want to reconcile work, uh, relationships with people at work. And so the believer can operate differently at, at work than others do. Secondly, uh, you let yourself be known as a person who is generous. One of the things she says here is if you're a manager or a person who has oversight, be generous, not just in money, but in the sense of advice, access to you, and investment in those who are under you, helping them to develop as people. Three, be known as a person who is calm and poised in the face of difficulty or failure. She writes, if your boss passes over you for a promotion or you fail to get the bonus that you expected or a colleague is placed on the team that you had hoped to be placed on, how you respond will reveal where your hope and identity is. And for us as believers, we're not to attach our treasure to the things of this world. Jesus said to us, you remember what he said? He said, lay up your treasures in heaven. Because wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So even though you might be disappointed that you got passed over, you didn't get the promotion, you did not receive the bonus you were looking for, you won't be crushed by that. Because what you really value is God and Christ and the things that God has in heaven as opposed to the things that are on earth. 
And that's one way that you can demonstrate your faith in Christ and stand out at work. The final thing she says is be known as a person who is authentic and integrated. Some Christians, she says, aren't open to talking about their faith at work. And there are others who talk about it all the time, but they act and speak in ways that marginalize non-believers. We should, of course, be wise about how we share the reason for our hope when we're at work. Saying silent is not an option, and she goes on and describes a variety of ways to do that. But she says, if we're authentic people, we must bring our whole selves to work. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't stop being a believer in Jesus Christ when you go to work. That's part of who you are, and that has to come to work with you. So as Christians, we take the opportunities when they're provided to testify to the compassion, generosity, steadfastness, and authenticity of Jesus. And when we as sinners... Uh, inevitably fail at displaying his fullness, we also are people who are quick to seek forgiveness from others and God, knowing that our righteousness is not found in us, but found in Christ and in him alone. And when we live in this way, when we go to work knowing that our job, that we're doing it not for a check, not so that we can uh, raise ourselves up, not trying to work to please our boss, but ultimately working to pleasing God. It has a way of impacting others because we're willing to make decisions that are different than others are willing to make because of our faith in God. One of those stories comes from Bethany. She talks about uh, a pastor, that, a story that her pastor shared with her. Her pastor, uh, when he was leading the church, was Tim Keller. And he shared this story about uh, a young woman who had come to his church uh, who was investigating Christianity because of a encounter and some things that had transpired at work with her boss. And so he retells the story. Uh, in the story, the young lady who had come to church had been working in Manhattan, uh, New York. And uh, I don't know what she was doing or what the field of work was. They didn't clarify it. But whatever the field of work was, uh, she was working there, and uh, she made a, a, a gross error, one that she felt that was going to cost her her job. And something happened that she did not expect to happen. When she told her boss about what had happened uh, and the failure that had happened, uh, he went to his supervisor uh, and took responsibility for what she had done, full responsibility. As a result, it did have a cost upon him in his career. Uh, he did not have the same freedoms that he had before, and he, and he lost some of his credibility in the organization. When she saw him do that, she was astounded. She was amazed. She was awestruck by this, and she wanted to know what was it that caused him to do that? And she wanted to thank him. So she went to his office after she had seen what he had done, went into his office, and went into his office thanked him, and then asked him why would he do such a thing. Because she explained to him that in her career before, all the previous times, what she had experienced in life was this, that whenever she had done something well and she had succeeded and accomplished a project, her supervisors would take credit for that and move their careers forward. But whenever she messed up, or there was a failure on her part, they would never take credit for that. They would pass that on to her. So she wanted to know why this supervisor, this boss, would be willing to stand in the gap and accept for uh, the responsibility that should have come to her. Uh, and he just kind of first just tried to deflect the questions and tried to move on to another topic. But she was insistent. She was trying to figure out why was he different than everyone else she had ever worked for. And so after pressing and pressing the point, he finally responded, and this is what he said. He said, I'm a Christian, and that means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for the things that I have done wrong. He did that on a cross 2,000 years ago, 
And that's why I desire and sometimes have the ability to take the blame for others. After he gave this statement, she stared in amazement. And you know what came out of her mouth? What church do you go to? That's what she wanted to know. Where do you go to church? And that ended up leading her to the church where Tim Keller was as the pastor. See, the reality is that when we as brothers and sisters live out our faith in our workplace, we live working for God, not working for ourselves. So that influences how we work. That influences how we respond to others at work and what we're doing and what we're working for. Then it has a way of impacting others because we will be different than others in the way we live and work. And so God uh, encourages us then to remember that what you're working for is not for yourself, not for your boss, not for your paycheck. You're working for him. And at the end of the day, he's the one who will ultimately hold you accountable. So as you go to work this week, work for God. That's the job. Let me pray, and then we'll get ready to dismiss. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that we would take seriously uh, every area of our lives, that there's nothing in our lives that does not fall under your sovereign rule. And we as believers should have transformed lives. And this is just one aspect of our lives that should be changed. Lord, one of the most wonderful things that you do at work is you give us an opportunity to obey the command. When they asked you what was the greatest command, you said to love your Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second is likened to the first, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every day at work, we have an opportunity to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, whether we choose to do that is another thing, but we have an opportunity every day that we go to work. At least eight hours a day, we get a chance to love others. Help us to remember that as we face whatever situations that we have at work, some of our work environments are hostile. Some of our work environments we may consider boring. Some of our work environments may be unpleasant. And some of our work environments may be dreams. But whatever situation we find ourselves in, help us to remember that we're fulfilling your will and that we're serving you by doing our jobs well and representing you in the workplace. We pray these things. In Jesus' precious name.